Let me try a quiz. Who can tell me where in the New Testament you can find a book of the Bible that is written to a church very similar to Laodicea? Colossians. All right, good. Who can tell me which New Testament books were written to a church that had in it living prophets? Corinthians. You got it? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, <clears throat> a gentleman preached on this passage. It was recorded on tape, and I got the tape years after he had died. Which tells me that if you preach the Word of God, it doesn't always stop working when you die. Verse 19 says... For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Is there a place for heresies in the church? Apparently, they're essential. They have an essential quality, because not everyone in the church is a safe teacher. Not everyone is someone you want to study under or receive instruction from. And you need some way to distinguish between those who are approved by God and those who are not. And what has he put in the church to serve that essential purpose? Heresies have done it. They show who's approved and who isn't. I'm debating how much to preach about that. I think I'll preach one more step about it and then leave it alone. Turn from your Bibles to Romans. This isn't written up there. Romans chapter 15, excuse me, verse 16, chapter 16. That was confusing. Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. says, Now I urge you, brethren, mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Isn't that sensible in light of 1 Corinthians 11? What are the purpose of heresies in the church? To show those who are approved. Well, who are approved by God? We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, right? A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Heresies show who are studying to show themselves approved. And what if you find a man who's speaking against the truth and causing divisions and offenses contrary to the truth? What relation should you have to him? Avoidance. Which is different than the word tuition. My better judgment almost told me not to say that. Verse 18. It says, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly." And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. <clears throat> simple. Another word for that is uneducated. Who is it that are deceived by these kind of people? The uneducated are deceived by them. <clears throat> what safety does Paul suggest? Avoid them. Who do you avoid? Those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine that's true. What's the purpose of people in the church that teach contrary to the doctrine? It's so you can know who are approved of God. In the passage written over there, Galatians 5, I don't think I put a verse there if I, if I didn't. Anyway, it's verse 19. Um, you're familiar with verse 22. It's the fruits of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace. Well, if you go back up to verse 18, you have a, the fruits of the flesh, which somehow never ended up nearly as famous. Um, but at the end of verse 19, one of the fruits of the flesh are... Are any of you looking at that? I didn't tell you to, so you don't need to be. It's heresies. Right there you have all these different things that people do who are serving their own bellies. And what's one of the fruits of serving the belly? It's doctrinal aberrations. If I could say this point clearly, if you're a glutton, don't begin to evaluate whether Ellen White is a true prophet you'll most certainly come to a wrong conclusion.
eventually. If you are serving your own lusts in some other way, whether it's a desire for honor or for power or whatever the case, if you're serving self and with that self-service you come to the issue of determining what is right and what is wrong, you're going to conclude the wrong eventually, if not immediately. Eventually, God will send you strong, what's that? Delusion. That's part of what you missed this morning. The other part is go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. I'm skipping past 1217, assuming that it's just very familiar to us. But 1217, speaking of the last day church, describes it. Maybe this also will get me in trouble, even with people who are helping to pay for my plane ticket here. But the church in Revelation 12 is not the organized body. I really do believe in an organized body that's essential, and it is the church that we're speaking of when we talk about testimonies of the church. But if you look at that church in Revelation 12, she has on a white robe. And you'll see there that she's the same church from before Christ was born to the very end. And you'll find there that her seed are called the remnant. And the remnant are those that are chosen according to the election of grace. Maybe this is just getting too far too fast, but I'll just say my point. You remember Elijah, Elijah when he said, I alone am left and they seek my life. And God said, I have reserved to myself 7,000 that have not bowed down the knee to Baal. Now let me ask you, were those 7,000 the visible or the invisible church? You know, Elijah couldn't see them. Does that make any sense to what I just said? They were the invisible church. Revelation 12 was about the invisible church. I don't go with those people who teach that that's the only true definition of church. It just isn't true. But it is a definition in Revelation 12. And there you have the remnant who keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, which is where we're looking. Revelation 19.10. Revelation 19 and verse 10 says, <clears throat> speaking about John, And I fell at his feet to worship him. That is, the angel. But he said to me, See thou do it not. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There are two thoughts in this verse significant to me. The one we're more familiar with and the one we're less familiar. The less familiar thought is that John had been with Jesus for three and a half years and understood the Ten Commandments. But when he was in the presence of a holy being, dazzling like an angel, without thinking about it, he violated the Second Commandment. We need to be seeking for some experience. Because when I come to Revelation 22, I find John doing the very same thing. And what did the angel here say? Don't do it. We go three chapters further. Let's go look at that. Look at Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 8. <clears throat> Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. At least I see that there is something about human nature in these two passages that is scary. I understand from these passages that the temptation to false worship in our day is going to be so intense that even if we had an experience like John, we might just go the wrong way. And that we're going to need something more than that. It is possible to have something more than that because John, this man himself, wrote, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we will be like him. So John didn't claim to have arrived. you follow what I'm saying? And it's very apparent here he had it. After receiving instruction three chapters later, he did the very same thing. This isn't on topic, but it's significant. Now to the on-topic part of Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9. In 19, he said, I love your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. What does he say in 22? 
I'm of your brethren, the prophets. The point I'm going to draw from this is one of those fuzzy, hazy, theological-sounding things that many people that haven't accustomed themselves to thinking through things get lost when I'm trying to say it. You're losing them right now where you haven't said it yet. But um, follow me for a minute. The Baptist Church has the Bible. The Bible was written by prophets. The prophets that wrote the Bible had the testimony of Jesus. Do you follow what I'm saying? Then a man that has the Bible, does he have the testimony of Jesus? Don't answer yet. My gut reaction might be to say, yes, he has it, because certainly this book is full of the testimony of Jesus. But in chapter 22 and 19, who has the testimony of Jesus? Is it the people who read the prophets or the prophets themselves? In chapter 19 and chapter 22. 19 said, I'm of your brother in the... They have the testimony of Jesus. 22 said, I'm of your brother in the prophets. The prophets are the ones that have the testimony of Jesus. When we talk about Corinth, and we mentioned this earlier this morning, that Corinth had the testimony of Jesus confirmed in Corinth, we don't mean that Corinth had the Old Testament scriptures. Certainly, all the New Testament churches had the Old Testament scriptures. What we mean is that there were living prophets in the church of Corinth. And when Revelation 22 speaks about the last day church having the testimony of Jesus, because of what I read, I don't understand it to mean that they have the Bible. But that in that church is, is an experience of someone, a living prophet in that last day church. Living prophets also die, so I'm not intimidated by the fact that ours did. I do expect that there's going to be another outpouring and there's going to be a whole bunch more of them. Does anyone have any questions about the points I've just made because I've just finished my morning sermon? Okay, I'm going on to the afternoon meeting. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 29, <clears throat> verse 10. The title of this meeting is, For So Persecuted They the Prophets. If you understand this principle simply, it will brace you to not be a sucker. That might be a bad word, I don't know. Not to be an easily duped person when it comes to the heresies that are going around today. Isaiah 29. We're looking at verse 20. It says, For the terrible one is brought... To nothing. The scornful one is consumed. This is talking about God's judgments, what's going to be. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off. About two months ago, I preached a sermon. I forget the title of it, but I can estimate the title. It was something like the New World Order Agenda. And there are other parts of the title, but that's the part I want to mention to you. The New World Order Agenda. Were you there for that sermon, Mr. Hong? It was Friday night. The New World Order Agenda. And here's my point of that sermon. Summarize in one minute. If it's the New World Order, it isn't God's agenda. Preaching it is a big mistake. I know if you are mad at me right now. Or else they weren't listening. It's a trick of the devil to get into conspiracy theories and to talk about them and research them. For the real issues in the book of Revelation, there's a ground you can resolve them on the basis of Bible study. But for the issues of the deep, deep origins of the Masons and their relation to the Illuminati, you're going to have to get into some mysterious pseudo-etceteras. And you're not going to know if what you're studying is true or not. You know, if it was true, the people involved would deny it, and the researchers would expose it. And if it was false, the people who were accused would deny it, and the people who were making the false accusation would affirm it. And either way, you're not going to get to the bottom of it. Did you know that in the time of Jesus, there were many conspiracy theories? In fact, in the Roman government, there were mysterious things going on, such that the longevity of people in charge was very short. It should be called short-jevity. 
Jesus never talked about the conspiracy theories. This was not on topic either, but it is on Isaiah 29 topic. Who are going to be cut off when God sends his judgments, the Isaiah 29 judgments? All who watch for iniquity. It describes them a little bit further. Verse 20. Who make a man an offender for a word. If you will think back to your own experience as a Christian, especially if you're talkative, you will realize that at some point you have said something that you very much regretted later. And in fact, there are some things you have said that you regretted them at the moment you were saying them. And there are some things, you understand what I'm talking about? It's such that you have given utterance to thoughts and feelings that you hardly even felt, but they came out so strong. And then they get reported back and forth and around. That also happens to good people. I mean, once the Bible calls righteous. Who is cut off? Those who watch for iniquity, who make a man an offender for a word. Read the rest of it. And lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate. Are there a certain class that people particularly watch to see if they make a goof? There is. It's the class of those who dare to reprove sin. Because of that, the Bible gives some special, I'm forgetting the fancy word, immunity. That's the one I'm looking for. Special immunity to elders. Do you have elders in this organization? Are any of you, like, maybe you don't organize to that level where you have, like, your own elders. Some of you, I suppose, are elders in some churches somewhere. When a man has been ordained as an elder in the church, do you realize the, the Bible gives him some immunity from gossip? It says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except in the presence of two or three co-conspirators? No, two or three witnesses. Yeah, don't. While it sets the elder apart and gives him some special immunity, in trade for that, it also gives him some special, special, I mean, the wrong word, he's held more accountable than the average Joe. You shouldn't tell a rumor, don't tell a rumor, don't listen to rumors, don't heed rumors, but if he's caught in open sin... It says, rebuke him publicly so that others also may fear. Do you rebuke him publicly for his benefit? It's not for his benefit. matter of fact, public rebuke creates a wound that mortifies. It does not help to reform people. It messes them up and destroys their soul. It's a bad idea. Why would you do it then? Because he put himself up as a teacher of the people. And while he's been given special immunity against malicious gossip, when he goes into open sin to save those people from his influence, they need it. Does the Bible give any examples of this? Well, it was Pope Peter himself, right? I'm talking about Galatians 2, when Pope Peter ended up going back on his teaching about the Gentiles. And so Brother Paul was there, and what did Brother Paul do? He said, I rebuked him to his face because he was to be blamed. I can go far afield very quickly. I'm going to come back to Isaiah 29. Those who watch for iniquity, those... I'll read it. 29.21 Who make a man an offender for a word and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate and turn aside the just... Does it say for a thing of naught in the King James? It's better than New King James in that particular phrase. Turn aside the just for something that's really nothing. Watch it with the men whom God has put as guardians of his people. And when I say watch it, I don't mean watch them. I mean watch it. Watch yourself that you don't end up trying to set them aside because they make a goof. Turn from your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 10. I think I'll even tell you a story after this. Jeremiah 20, verse 10. It says, For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. This is a mentality. Ellen White quotes that part of the verse many times. 
without quotation marks and without a reference. Well, here's the reference. You, have you seen that mentality? The mentality reports say they and we will report it. That's why I want to tell you a story. And then if you have this mentality, you'll go tell other people the story. That's not what I mean. But you understand how it works and that kind of thing like that. It's the mentality to want to hear, to want to hear some juicy wickedness about the brethren so you can pass the juicy wickedness along. That mentality is going to be cut off. You want to get out of that before it's bad news for you. We're going to finish the verse, but first I'm going to tell you the story. One day I was in Oklahoma City. There was a women of spirit meeting there. That's kind of the equivalent of the promise keepers. Thank you, the promise keepers. And I had been called by someone I'd never met, and, and they asked me if I wanted to help pass out magazines about the Sabbath to the tens of thousands of people that were going there. That's not like a fun activity to me. Free literature. I'm into selling it. Give it away. I like it. I said, yeah, I'll come. I came. And so I was there and passing it out. It's just a breeze to pass it out. Well, here I am with several people. Like we're trying to guard the aisle where everyone's coming our direction. And I'm in the middle. And there's one here and one here. And while I'm doing it, the one over here begins to talk. He was a lot bigger than me, which is almost all those guys. But I just remember he was particularly bigger than me. And he was talking about how, how the Adventist church was against this work. Passing these magazines out. And I was thinking, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and I'm in favor of this work. But I was just keeping that thought to myself. That's what I was thinking. And then he talked about how Seventh-day Adventist ministers now don't like the great controversy. Well, I was thinking about that because in my work, I often have to call some Adventist ministers to arrange for a place for my call putters to stay. And I find that the ministers I deal with, which have been ministers in 30 different states, I've only met one out of the hundreds I've dealt with that wasn't in favor of the book, The Great Controversy. Now, maybe if I was here in California, maybe the ratio would be slightly different. But I still, but I still don't think that it would be... Well, I don't know about it here, but listen, I've been working on the other half of the United States, and it was one in a hundred, okay? And so I'm thinking this is bogus. And I rebuked the man right there because of the ninth commandment. You see that little number nine in the box? The ninth commandment is very strong, and it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We must be very careful how we speak about people with generalities or rumors. If we don't have strong evidence from several witnesses that something wrong has been done, if we go ahead and just risk telling it as if it really is a fact, we are risking breaking the Ten Commandments. It's about the same business as if you keep vacuuming your house when you're not sure if the sun has gone down outside. Someone here played a trick on me Friday night and told me the sun had gone down while I was vacuuming. Well, it weren't true, but you know, it was intimidating. Okay. It was intimidating. If you're not sure, shouldn't you stop? Because you don't want to break the thing. If you're not sure, don't spread the rumor. The commandment says don't tell rumors. And I told the guy, listen, you're bearing false witness against those pastors. It's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. It's as bad as breaking the Sabbath or stealing something. You're a sinner. You shouldn't do it. I don't think I said it quite that way, but I said it in a way that was... But it wasn't very different than that because we had a rapport already, and I could do that. And he accepted it. Well, you know, I told you, how many of us were there? And in the process of the beginning of the thing, he talked about how ministers always oppose this work. And now we've sort of got to that quiet stage where too much has been said and everyone just has to be quiet. You ever been in one of those situations? And the third guy pops up while he's patching up magazines and says, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. That's just for your benefit, for future reference. Summary of what we've said so far is this. The Ninth Commandment forbids telling lies about people. It's a serious one. You shouldn't bear false witness. Not only the person who originates the lie is guilty, but the one who dares to spread the lie 
matter of fact, the commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. You get the idea of like carrying it. You don't have to start it to break the commandment. You just have to be part of the transmission business. That is a commandment in the Ten Commandments. Watch it. Now, go to Matthew 5.12. We are getting to the spirit of prophecy. We're getting there. It just takes a while. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12. I need to start in verse 11 or it won't make any sense to you. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. If you want to know how they persecuted the prophets which were before you, the more famous persecutions were that they put Isaiah in a log and cut him in half and things like that. But you know the most common persecution was spreading rumors and telling lies. It was so general that Jesus used it to characterize the type of persecution against prophets. And in the process of my own work, because I have a burden to know that what I believe is true, instead of going to college, I took a bunch of time to study. And I really did. And, I, and in, in the process of this bunch of time, one of the things that I did is I, I went through all the objections that I could find against our truth. All of them that I could find. And in the issues of Ellen White, no exception. I went through them. I've read Ray and Ballinger and Canwright and the whole... I've read it. I want to know what's true, you know, to know. One thing I found was people tell lies. And then I found that people believe them and just carry them on and spread them until the same thing is being told by so many people. It's incredible. I had an experience this week where Walter Ray, I suppose he lives somewhere near here. Does Walter Ray live in this general neighborhood? Anyone know where he lives? I suppose it's somewhere here in California. I mean, just recently he published something new. Walter Ray's the man who wrote that book called The White Lie. And the summary of that book is that Ellen White didn't have enough creativity to write as much as she did. And so she copied, he estimates 90% of her material from other sources. Now other men quoting him tend to soften it down and say like, 50 to 90 percent. That's Ratzliff. Dale Ratzliff says 50 to 90 percent. I read his thing this morning. Someone asked me last night if I'd read Ratzliff, and I had to admit that when I went through this business, Ratzliff wasn't in the business yet. And so I was thinking, I guess, no, I haven't. So this morning, I got up very early, and this morning, I read Ratzliff. And if there's anything you'd like to know, I'll just tell you, it's just the rest of them. It's nothing new. I decided when I was going to evaluate Ray on the plagiarism issue, I would read his book, The White Lie. What I expected to find was a number of parallel paragraphs showing where this was the original and this is what, how Ellen White copied it. I expected that he could produce quite a few of them, especially from The Great Controversy and the Czar of Ages, because in the introduction to the first volume of The Great Controversy, Ellen White very plainly announced before selling the book that she was copying for many people. Have any of you read that introduction? If anyone tried to say it's a cover-up, they don't know what they're talking about. It was announced before it was accused. And if you want to read what she says in that introduction, it's, it's very logical. She says that the reason that she isn't putting it in quotation marks and giving quotations from them is that she didn't want the reader, because the original edition was written for Adventists, it has things like I was shown. She didn't want the reader to think that it was true because the historian said it. It was true because she was shown it. And why did she pick their words? Because they were gifted writers. If you've, I read Wiley and Daubigny, and I'll tell you, they are. They're gifted writers. They have a way with words. And if I wanted to say what they said, I think if I could get away with it, I would just quote them. Whether or not you like what she did, the fact of the matter is she didn't hide it. Do you follow what I'm saying? It was an announcement. There it is, up front. So I expected Ray to do that, but I didn't find that. 
I found not a single thing other than innuendo and accusation until near the end of chapter 2 of his book. And then as his introductory argument, and I really expected the introductory argument would be the strongest one, or else the second strongest. You want to start with something very strong and end with something strong. I'll tell you what he started with. He started with Paradise Lost. And he talked about how in Paradise Lost, I'm moving into super paraphrase here, this, the idea of what I'm about to tell you is truth and the details may not be. That sounds so terrible. <laughs> anyway, you'll get the eye picture as I keep going. What are things that you could know? Suppose that you are Milton and you're about to write this book, Paradise Lost. You're not inspired. You're just a good poet. What are things you can know from the Bible about the fall uh, and the entry of sin into the universe? Could you know that originally there was no sin in the universe from the Bible? Could you know that Lucifer sinned before Adam or Eve? Could you know that there were angels guarding the outside of the garden? Could you know that the way that Satan deceived the other angels was by lies? You can know that, couldn't you? He was the liar and the father of liars from, from the beginning. Could you know that there was an actual battle between Jesus and Satan? You can know that. By just a little bit of thinking... Could you realize that the, the angels must have talked about these arguments of Satan? I don't know. For you, that, for me, that's not a very big jump of thinking. I would just, I would just figure it had to be. And, and when the thing begins to go so that there's a division, can you see that the good angels would be pleading with the, the questioning angels to stay loyal to God? I'm telling you that Milton wasn't being overly creative when he was writing this book. This is just thinking it through. Would you know that Adam and Eve were not together when Eve took the fruit? It's not very plainly stated, but you could definitely gather it by thinking it through, what's written in Genesis. Would you realize that if Adam had been there, it probably wouldn't have happened quite the same way? You probably could gather that same thing, because the Bible says that Adam was not deceived. And in the summary of what I was going to get at is I could go through with you like this a number of things and show you that what Milton wrote in Paradise Lost wasn't fiction. He wasn't just being creative. He was thinking things through and writing out what could be deduced from the Scripture. You follow what I'm saying? Now you come to Patriarchs and Prophets. Ellen White is shown these things in vision and she writes out the story. As far as Milton's deductions were logical... If Ellen White is a true prophet, wouldn't you expect her to be teaching the same things since she's writing on the same topic? You would have to. And this is Ray's first accusation that Ellen White must be a plagiarist because she follows the extra-biblical information of Milton in six points. And I, in my own mind, went through and found that I could arrive at every one of those six points simply from biblical deduction. In other words, the first accusation was as weak as water, and it didn't get better. Well, this week, I decided to brush up on what I was finding, and I found that Walter Ray had put out some new stuff. Maybe he had more time for research, I thought, and so I better check into it. Um, and so I went, and I found that he went through the nine volumes of the testimonies and showed how the nine volumes of the testimonies are plagiarized from other sources. And he has the list of the nine volumes, page by page, and where they're taken from. Pretty impressive, because, you know, if there's something that we didn't expect to be plagiarized, wouldn't it be the nine volumes? So I decided to check into it. I happened to have one of the books that he said was the source for two parts of the testimonies, Testimony Volume 6 or 7, and Volume 8 or 9. I don't remember, anyway, two of them. It was the Jan Andrews History of the Sabbath. Conveniently, at least in the first case, he gives the page number. So, my wife was there and I was doing this. I decided I went through, I, I took, on my computer has the book. I read both of them. I didn't notice parallels, so I decided to check for key words. Because key words are one way to find plagiarism. When you're copying, it's those big words that sort of stand out, especially if you have two or three of them in a row. I couldn't find a single key word that was even used in both of them. Much less a parallel phrase or a parallel development. 
In other words, the accusation was 100% bogus. That's wicked. And I don't recommend you follow it. See how far I got off the list. Just a minute. All I did is I forgot to finish Jeremiah 20.10, where Jeremiah says that all of my familiars watched from my halting, saying, peradventure he will be enticed, and we will sh- we sh- peradventure he will be enticed, and, and I forgot the rest of the verse. Just a minute. The idea is that we're going to be avenged on him. Jeremiah 20, verse 10. It says, All my acquaintances watched from my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. If you want to know the secret source of the lies that characterize the persecution of prophets, this is it. People read things that Ellen White wrote about them that they didn't like. Rebukes of their passions and appetites and desires. They didn't like it. And they tried to get revenge. That's what happened to Jeremiah, and it wasn't the last time it happened. If you look down to point number three, where it says setting the record straight, you'll see there are four types of arguments, or three types of arguments. Well, you can see I got ahead of myself, right? I went to point three already, I mean point C. Let's talk about point A, arguments of influence. The idea that prophets can be influenced has a unfortunate history in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, it has to do with Uriah Smith and a few other people, including Ballinger. To make the story short, once upon a time, Jones and Wagner were here in California with Ellen White and Willie White preparing for the 1888 General Conference. And there was a man here that was very unimpressed with the theology of Jones and Wagner. What didn't he like about it? It had nothing to do with forensic justification and issues that are brought up over 1888 today. It just wasn't related. What he didn't like is, is what Jones and Wagner were teaching about the law and the covenants. Then he noticed this man that it looked like Ellen White was beginning to side with these young men. But you know, she was getting old. Any of you who've ever worked in a nursing home realize that when people get old, sometimes they lose their um, rationability, which doesn't sound like English either. But anyway, they lose their ability to think coherently. He thought maybe Ellen White was getting a little up there and was being manipulated by these young men. So he dashed off a letter and sent it to Michigan. It was received by the brethren there and it warned them to brace themselves that these young men had taken in Ellen White and that she had been manipulated into supporting them. Let me just back off from the history and just tell you something. If that can happen to prophets, this book is not heavily reliable. Because in the case of Adventism, we have a bunch of history we can go to. Maybe we can find, well, that testimony was influenced, and that one wasn't, and this one was, and that one wasn't, and we can pick and choose what to believe. But you know, the history about this book is long gone. Do you follow what I'm saying? And we don't know what stands and what doesn't. I hope you understand that's tongue-in-cheek. It all stands. Because God never did allow that to happen to prophets. Ellen White wrote about that herself. The argument of influence has been torn up from the roots in an academic way by the doctoral thesis of Jerry Moon. If any of you are into reading long, hairy things that prove their point with details, you can read his thesis. It's called Ellen White and Willie White, except for it might be Willie White and Ellen White. But anyway, it's the same thing, published by Andrews University Press. It's thorough. And what it shows is that Ellen White is the one who influenced Willie. 
which is the way it ought to be. I just want you to know that if you ever pass along this rumor of influence, before you do, get your bearings. It's dangerous stuff. Because you're accusing a prophet not only of being influenced, but of being dishonest. And you don't want to do that. I didn't prove anything to you right now, but you know it takes a book to prove something like influence. Influence isn't a very factual business, you know what I mean? It's not something you can prove with math. If you want more information, read the book. Next point, arguments of post-mortem tampering with the testimonies. That reminds me about this morning, Sabbath school. How many of you have known someone or received literature from someone who believed that the Godhead consists of the Father and the Son? And that's all. Okay, it's maybe an eighth of us. I'm also surprised that every time I ask questions like that, I'm surprised. It seems like that people manage to find wind shelters because you know this stuff is blowing all over and I don't know how you escape it. But um, these people are out there in great numbers promoting these ideas. Maybe someone here promotes it. I don't know. If one of you stood up and said, I believe that, what I would say back to you would be, you've fallen for a trick. I don't primarily mean a trick about the Godhead. I mean a trick about agendas. The devil has often worked this way to take an obscure point and make it a point of argument because obscure points make the best arguments. You follow what I'm saying? And the more obscure it is, the more elongated the argument can be. The nature of the Godhead in the Scripture is obscure enough that the early church argued about it for several hundred years. Why is it obscure? Because it never has been and never will be the point of anything. It's not the point. And to make it a point, whether you're right or wrong, is wrong. That would be my first answer. In the book of Revelation... It's nowhere the point. Why? What's my opinion about why it's not the point? Well, one reason it's beyond us to get it. We don't get it. I don't expect to get it for some time. How in the world did I get on now? I need to look at my notes. Just a minute. Oh, the tampering with the testimonies. Because when you eventually get down to that issue, if it's with people who believe in the testimonies, eventually you're going to get to the book evangelism. And in the book of evangelism, near the back, in the 600s, you're going to find a whole section that's put together where you have statements by Ellen White in reference to the Godhead. Have any of you seen that section? And in there you'll find terms like the triune God. T-R-I-U-N-E. I'm not even sure if it's in the dictionary, but it is in evangelism. Right there. You can find it. And you'll find statements so plain that in a way it settles the issue except for that if you find statements from other places, you can make it obscure again. Because it always has been an obscure issue and always will be because it never was the issue. But my point is that if you come to those statements, the common plea is those were tampered with. The original writings didn't say that and they were changed by Leroy Froome or some other personage after Ellen White died. That's a strong accusation. If it's true that the writings of prophets can be tampered with by people who were close to them or in authority after they died, this again becomes a very questionable document. If you go to the White Estates, you can settle those issues. You can find the handwritten copies where the things are there, where Elmite wrote what she did in these cases, it's there. I think you have a White Estate right here local on campus somewhere, don't you? Yeah, so very easy for you. You can just go do that. Have any of you ever heard something like this? That Ellen White's books that she wrote were good, but the compilations made after she died are not good. Have any of you ever heard something kind of like, like a, a generality like that? Or like Messages to Young People is a terrible book. Have you ever heard something like that? 
It's bogus. If you want to find an example of a compilation made during Ellen White's life, you can find it in the fifth volume of the Testimonies. She made it herself. And you know, most of the things she put into her compilation were one paragraph long. It's chapters 7 and 8, or is it 37 and 38? Anyway, it's the chapters called The Purpose and Use of the Testimonies. And the second one in the chapter is called... It means Unfounded Reports, and that might be the title of it, Unfounded Reports. Ellen White's will allowed for a compilation made from her writings. Compilations, maybe in many cases you'll want to check and find the context, but nonetheless, they're good stuff. They save you time and help you find what you're looking for. That said, I would recommend that you go find, you know, read manuscript releases. Yeah, you'll find all kinds of beautiful stuff you won't find anywhere else. Okay, I'm just making too many value judgments for someone who's trying to prove his point. But does anyone have any questions on something I've said so far before I move on? Yes, sir. We do, let me see if I can say it right, but it, would it be remiss to have a Bible study for amazing facts and say this is a Bible study? Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, to take a piece here and a piece there and a piece there, you're not going to say that this was organized by some prophet. It wasn't organized by a prophet, but it is by prophets. And you can arrive at truth that way. Yeah, so, so if you want to, you could go this far. You could say, Message of the Young People does not reflect the um, book compilation skill of Ellen White. That's true. The paragraphs in there are true. And if you put them all together, they're still true. I'll give you my experience. People talk a lot about context. And in fact, one of the chapters in Del Ratzliff's book that I was reading this morning is context, 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 except for it might have four of them. But it's basically the idea. Context, context, context. Context is helpful, but it can be used backwards. Context helps you find how to apply the thing to yourself. But if you try to use the context to show how it doesn't apply to yourself, you're using it backwards. Can I give an example that you can just see plainly? When Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Go and sell that you have and give to the poor. The context is that it was a rich man and it was a young man and it was a man in authority. And he was asked to sell what he had and to give to the poor, but it was back in the days when there was no stock market to invest in so that he could get more money to give to the poor later. That's the historical context. And so I could take that and I could say, so I'm not young. Well, I am, but you could say, maybe, I'm not young or I'm not a ruler. And so it doesn't apply to me. It's bogus. The context helps you to say, oh, I am like him in some way. And I can see myself in that story some way. It was designed to apply to a whole bunch of people that are like him in some way. And if we can find somewhere we're like him, we can learn something from the sad story. Ditto with the testimonies. The testimonies, if you read the history of how they are written, were written specifically... Matter of fact, have you read this where Elmite talked about it? She argued with the angel. It made no sense to her why to write a testimony for Sister Bertha when she knew before she even got started that Sister Bertha didn't want the testimony, wouldn't receive the testimony, it would do her no good. How many of you ever talked about this with the angel? This is what was explained to her. It was first with a little picture of cutting out garments for people. It explained to her that this testimony for Bertha isn't just for Bertha. It's for hundreds of others after her whose experiences are typified in certain characteristics of her life. 
And you know, if you've read the testimonies, that it's incredible how what is being written to that person you've never heard of typifies an experience in your own life. Context is helpful if you're reading it to find a way to apply it to yourself. But if you're reading it to find an excuse, you will excuse yourself from heaven. It reminds me of a poem by Uriah Smith called It's Jewish. Have you read the poem by Uriah Smith, It's Jewish? It's very light, edifying reading. I can't quote it to you, but I can paraphrase it to you because it's sort of like a story. I do see. I will stop soon. What he, in, this, in the parable, Uriah Smith talks about how people reject the Sabbath because the Sabbath is Jewish. He talks about how you bring all these other arguments that from the Bible to show that it was given before there was a Jew, but the people say it's Jewish. And you show how Jesus kept it, and they say it's Jewish. You show how it was given for man, and they say it's Jewish. And he goes through all these biblical arguments in this poem, and what's the answer to everything? It's Jewish. And finally, he, in the poem, he concedes it, says, okay, then I also suppose that you will reject, for example, the um, Old Testament, because it's Jewish. And perhaps you'll reject the New Testament, because it was written by Jews. And in fact, you'll have to reject... James and John and, and Peter and Paul, and in fact, all because they were Jewish. In fact, you'll probably also reject our Savior Jesus because he was Jewish. And in the very end, you'll have to reject salvation too because Jesus said, "'Tis of the... You understand how the poem goes. If you're using context for an excuse, you'll really mess yourself up. If you'll use it for, to find out how it applies to you, the testimonies are full of information. I think I finished my whole point. Just a minute. Oh, pearls and swine. Point D. In preaching, you can't help this. You just say everything to everybody and hope for the best. But when you're talking about giving individual help to people, it's not just because someone says the wrong thing that you ought to go help them. Ministry of Healing talks about when did Jesus try to help people? It's when he saw a felt need. That's like an opportunity for uplifting. You don't do any service to someone if you try to help them with a testimony when they're not looking for help. They're not going to take it, and you're going to get it. Which was the point of Jesus, right? He said, for they will turn again and rend you. If you find some pearls, treasure them. But be careful where you put them. What I want to do is close with a prayer and then give what, a 10-minute break. Is that rational? And we'll meet back again and start over. I mean, a new topic. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the warning of Jesus that prophets have been lied about so much. I ask that you would give us discernment when we encounter one of those lies. Teach us how to evaluate the criticism that comes our way. Keep us from violating that ninth commandment. May we honor the reputation of the people that you have sent into this world. I depend on you for help with that, and I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.